Well, good morning, Redeemer. It's wonderful to see you all. If you have a Bible, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 24-31. Before we open God's word, let us pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the beautiful sunshine and this um, second summer that we get to enjoy now. We thank you for a wonderful Heidelfest yesterday. Uh, for the, again, the, the beautiful weather and the service um, of all those saints who dedicated their time to put on such a wonderful festival. We pray today that you would open your word to us, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a, a heart that draws near to you, Lord. We pray that as we consider uh, the conclusion of this story with David and Bathsheba, that we would first consider our own sins, that we would turn to you in confession, that we would know that you are our Lord and Redeemer, and that we, Lord, would feel the assurance of the justification and sanctification that we are receiving in Christ and through Christ, in whose name we pray, and amen. Now, just to recap, Yahweh delivered David because he humbled himself, because he humbled himself greatly before the Lord, but there must be blood to cover sin. We know this. We've read our Bibles. We know that there will be blood. Blood always has to cover sin. And so David and Bathsheba's son, their child, is put to death. The punishment that David deserved was placed upon his son. David, who hardened his heart toward God like Pharaoh, like Pharaoh, lost his son as a result of his rejection of the Lord. But the death of David's son was a substitutionary death that freed David to enter God's presence once again. When the child died, taking David's deserved death, what did he do? Once the deed was done, he arose, he washed, he anointed himself, he changed his clothes, he worshipped, and he ate. David rose from the dust of death to the Lord's table, and this is the story of all of us. David accepted the twin realities of God's grace and judgment, and he was comforted. He was comforted by the word of the Lord because it was true and good and righteous. And he was comforted by the Lord himself. Now, those who are comforted by the Lord have, therefore, a ministry to comfort others. That is why we receive comfort. Just like everything that we receive from the Lord, we receive to give away. And so David, comforted by the Lord, is now able to comfort his wife, Bathsheba. It says in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 24 through 25, Then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba, and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son. And he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jebediah, Jedediah, excuse me, because of the Lord. Now David has truly been restored. He humbled himself, and so... He is raised by God to do the work of God. We know this from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It says in verses 3 through 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And there it is. There's your ministry. You receive comfort as a sinner, as someone who should not see the face of God. You behold the face of God. And that comfort is your ministry. It is the thing you're taking into the world to give to others. And what you see here is David's ministry to his wife. He has been comforted by God, and therefore he is equipped to comfort his wife. 
In a consoling act of intimacy, David embraces his wife Bathsheba, who no longer is known by her designation, the wife of Uriah. The sin that existed is taken away. Up till now, no matter what has occurred, they refer to her as the wife of Uriah. And now, now that David has humbled himself, now that he's been restored, he is, in fact, comforting his wife, who is known by what? The wife of David. She is no longer known by her sin. She is known by the undeserved grace that she has received by God. And this is the story of all of us. Satan calls us by our sin. God calls us by his own name. That's the exchange on the cross. That's the exchange of the empty tomb. That's the exchange of the ascension. Satan wants to call you by your sin. God wants to call you by his own name. Now, after the, dis- the destruction of their sin, we see that they are not separated by it. Sin's effect on their relationship by God's grace has been removed. Now, Bathsheba trusts David. Now, ladies, how hard would that be? How difficult? After every, right? You're willing to sleep with a woman who's not your wife. You're willing to murder her husband. Your baby dies as a result. Why would she go back to the arms of this man? Unless what? Unless grace changed her heart. Unless she was softened by the comfort that they received from the Lord God. Right? Clearly the sin has been handled. Otherwise there's no woman, right? No self-respecting woman would go back to such a man. Unless their hearts were softened by the grace of God. Now, and this is what grace does for adulterers, even adulterers. There is no reason that they should be granted a warm and loving relationship with one another. And, and if, if we've been reading the story up to now, why? Why are they allowed to do this? After everything that they have done, how is it that they are allowed to have a warm embrace, a loving marriage, a fruitful marriage? There's no reason that God should have granted this to them, this warm and loving relationship, but what it shows us is that what God can do in hearts devoted to him, in true repentance and true worship. There's no reason they should trust each other. There's no reason they should enjoy the benefits of a good marriage. But the triune God restores to us more than what we lose when we turn to him. What did she lose? A husband. What did she gain? A husband. What did she lose? A child. What did she gain? A child. What, what, what she now gains is she's also, in fact, the queen. So she, she's actually at a higher place in society. She has a husband who, who comforts her, truly comforts her. Where did she get off deserving such things? Arms bereft of a child now embrace first a husband and a king, and as a result, she gives birth to a son, and she, those arms, those treacherous arms, embrace the son. The son who will bring the Savior into the world, I might add. From the depths of brokenness and sorrow emerge a family who will bring forth the Savior of the world. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is who you are. This is your mission in the world. We are all of us adulterers and murderers. We are all of us receiving the comfort that comes from heaven. And our mission, therefore, in this world is that comfort. This thing that we don't deserve is supposed to be fruitful. It's supposed to bring forth in the world comfort and peace and love. We see in the comforting embrace of David, warmly received by his wife, the embrace of the Lord God of sinners who are undeserving. That's what we see in this embrace. Not just a man and a woman. Not just a husband and a wife, not just a mother and a child, but we see the the very God whom we serve, the very God who has saved us, the very God who has called us into his family. 
Now, a second son replaces the first. This second son is passed over by the angel of death. Why could there ever be any fruit that comes from this womb? And yet, the angel of death passes over the second son. This helps us understand the typology of the passage. What is going on here? This replacement theme that we see in the gospel of Jesus Christ is here foreshadowed and carried forward from the book of 1 Samuel. What did we see in 1 Samuel? We saw in 1 Samuel that Samuel replaced Eli's sons, remember? Saul replaced Samuel's sons. David replaced Jonathan. And now Solomon replaces the unnamed son. There seems to be a pattern. There seems to be a theme here. Jesus died and rose. He took David's place on David's throne. He took Adam's place at God's right hand to deliver the word of God as a greater prophet than Moses. You see that the second son is greater than the first. Adam came, he fell, he lost it all, and the second greater son comes and replaces the first. This is a biblical theme of the second son being the son of promise fulfilled in Christ. This is, this is the gospel. This is the story of the Bible. This is the story of redemptive history, and, and we see it in this boy Solomon who replaces the first unnamed son. Now, the royal parents named their son Solomon, which literally means Yahweh's restoration, Yahweh's peace. Following the agony of death, the Lord gives David peace. That's the key here, right? Names are never just names. They name him peace. Why? Because they've received peace with that God to which they were at war with. They went to work on God. (laughs) They found that God was greater than them, and God overcame them. God went to work on them. God won the war, and now they've laid down their arms, and they are at peace. And what they see in their son is peace. Now, the contrast between the first child of David and the second are sharp. The Lord fatally judged the first. The Lord loved the second, it says. Now, we are tempted here to go down a path that I don't think we should go down. And this is where, <laughs> this is where we have to be very careful with the judgment of God, with the consequences of, of even forgiven sin. Because many people see in this story, Romans chapter 9, verses 11 through 13. There it says, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, She was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So the firstborn son dies, he's clearly an Esau. God clearly hated him. He's clearly not elected. The second one is what it's all about. And and what, what happens when we look at stories like this and misread it is then we go into the world and we see stories all around us that we misread. Because the Bible is supposed to teach us how to read, not just itself, but our story, our circumstances, the story and circumstances of others. Just because the firstborn son dies in this fashion does not make him an Esau. This election, this passing over the first son for the second, is a deep and abiding theme throughout the scriptures, but we must not draw the wrong conclusions when it occurs. Choosing the second son over the first does not necessarily denote that God hates him. Though God's ways in redemptive history are strange to us, more strange than we realize, we must retain the hope and faith of David. Now, what did David say of the son? David, who's now restored, David, who's a prophet, David, who's a priest, David, who's a king, David, whose heart is near God. What did he say of the child? He said in 2 Samuel 12, 23, but now he is dead. Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. 
Where is David headed? David is heading to the place where the, where the child awaits him. David's hope, right? David's belief is not that it's an Esau that God hated. God didn't destroy this child because he hated the child. God destroyed the child because he hated David's sin. David understood this. And so drawing the wrong conclusions from the story is damnable heresy for us and for any other story that we will go and misread. Oh, well, that, that person's child died. God's hand is heavy upon them. It must be a judgment that came down out of heaven. Is that always the case? What if it actually has nothing to do with the child itself? What if it is that God hates the sin of the parents? Right? C.S. Lewis said what? God speaks to us in our pleasures. Right? He whispers to us, but he screams at us in our agonies. He screams at us. I'm paraphrasing, of course. He screams at us in the difficult circumstances that we endure. When someone loses their child in the midst of a terrible, sinful situation, what we cannot do is turn to Romans 9, 11 through 13 and merely comfort ourselves. We have to be very, very careful judging these things. We must affirm God's mysterious electing power, but not draw the wrong conclusions. Remember that Jesus was asked if a man's blindness was the result of his or his parents' sins. Remember the story? They come to him. They say, this man, is this man blind because he is a sinner or his parents are a sinner? Jesus doesn't answer either question. He's, right? he, he says something completely different. He says, no, this has occurred so that God's glory may be revealed. So this story with David's child, the reason the first child died is because he's crying out to David to repent, David to take his sins seriously, and what he is doing is showing forth the glory of God. Now, Amid these difficult circumstances and temptations of doubting God's goodness that surely must come in these circumstances, the prophet Nathan returns, the messenger of God returns, and he brings a reassuring message, very different from the message he brought before, neatly expressed in a second name, Jedidiah, loved by the Lord is what it means. So Nathan says, this, this child isn't just your peace. We're going to name him again, and that name means that the Lord God loves him. This is a child whom God loves. And what you see here is more than just uh, some nice, you know, it's not like God just sent a card. Oh, David has had a baby. I'm going to send him a Hallmark card and, and full of warm and fuzzies and make him feel better. No, what you see here is a, is, is a remaking of the covenant that God made with him in Second Samuel 7. Remember, that, that was a promise of an eternal son that would sit on on the throne forever, that David's household would bring the Messiah into the world, that it would be God's son, that he would build the temple, that he would fulfill all the promises. And what, what we're seeing here is that because of his repentance, because of his restoration, God is going, calling back to that and, and reassuring David that that promise has not been void. There is hope for David. There is hope from, for Israel. And it's because, because he saw his sin and repented of it. Saul sinned. Saul did not repent. Saul was tossed out. His household was tossed out. David sins. David is a mere man, but he repents of his sin, and therefore there is hope. That is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. David knows now that he's been restored to fellowship with the Lord, and that of all of his many children, there, there is still one here that will bear the promise the promise given to him in 2 Samuel 7. Now, going deeper, we see that both Solomon's name and Absalom's name contain the word shalom, or peace. And this is always interesting. Names are never just names. 
You have two sons here. Both of them <laughs> have peace in the name, but they couldn't be more different. Absalom is the, is the one who shatters peace, who brings nothing but warfare and, and anger and malice and destruction. Solomon, right, there is peace in his name, and he is, in fact, the true son, the son of promise, who will not only bring peace to the household of Israel, to his father's household, to the nation, but to the whole world, because through him comes the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the verbal echo here in their names, it sets up a contrast that's going to now, it's foreshadowing the rest of the story. Absalom breaks the peace. It's a sign of the antithesis from Genesis 3.15, where there's these two warring families, one family that brings war, one family that brings peace, the sons of Satan versus the sons of God. And what we see is the same old fight from Genesis 3.15 playing out in the very household of David, just as it did with Adam's first two sons. There are two lines. Sometimes they are related by blood, but they, they are at war, and one is the shatterer of peace, and one is the bringer of peace. We are supposed to be peacemakers. We are supposed to be the lineage of peace. We are supposed to not be Absalom's, but Solomon's. Now, the choice of Solomon as king, above all, the birth of Jesus into the line of David, gives practical expression to the reality of God's acceptance of sinners. Though we find it difficult to understand why Solomon, of all David's children, would have been God's choice for David's successor, the fact that he was chosen, he is endorsed, there is a way back into fellowship with God that he will provide for himself. And what I like about this is that Solomon isn't the saddest of the sons, right? There are other sad sacks in his household. We're going to get to them. What I like about Solomon is that the circumstances in which he is born into the world are the, sad, are the most pathetic. Because, right, he, he killed Uriah. He took this woman. And they are restored sinners. And of all of the children that are born to him, the circumstances of his birth are the most embarrassing and most shameful. But we read in Matthew chapter 1 what, that through, the, through that one, through those circumstances, comes the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of God comes from unlikely places, places that we would never look Right? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of these two restored adulterers? Are you kidding me? There are people, sinners, in the Christian church that I know are restored adulterers. And I know that people told them nothing good would ever come of this. They've been told that. Why? Because we're so hard-hearted, we're so high-minded, we're, we think so much of ourselves that we don't think that God could take the saddest story in our midst and make the most glorious revelation of his grace and mercy and kindness to the world through them. And this is a story that, we, that, that ruffles our feathers, that gives us a lot of difficulties, and, and, but the right difficulty, the proper difficulty it ought to give us is, is our own high-minded self-righteousness. If, if something good can come from these two, something good can come from any two. The word of the Lord has the power to touch the springs of conscience deep within the human personality, to bring to light the hidden things of darkness that are there, exposing them to the purifying light, and and overcoming evil with good. It is the outworking of his acceptance in real life that brings home this truth. God forgives repentant sinners, and the fruit of that grace is peace. David and Bathsheba turn to God. What do they receive? Comfort. What do they receive? Peace. That's what this story is about. Do you need peace? Are you at war? 
Now, who are you at war with? Are you, are you a shatterer of peace or are you a bringer of peace? Are you walking in unrepentant sin or are you repenting before the Lord? Are you judging rightly or judging incorrectly? Now, these two stories, there's two stories here, really, in this portion. And the reason I put them together is because actually they're about the same thing. Right? One is, is, is a husband and wife who are at war with themselves and against God against their own households, and they have, what, what they have received is peace. And what you have is Israel that is at war with the nations, and, and, and what connects the two stories is peace. Peace is the connecting peace. You're, wel- you're welcome. Laura, did you like that, Laura? Where's Laura? You're welcome. Now, the two stories are connected through this word peace. We turn now to Second Samuel chapter 12, verses 26 to 31. Now, Joab... Joab fought against Rabab the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabab. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold. And in it was a precious stone, and was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it, and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes, and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Now, chapter 12 ends where chapter 11 began, with the siege of of the city. Now, Rabah of Amon was situated near the source of the river Jabbok, which flowed to the south of the ancient city. At last, after many, 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 many conflicts, Joab has captured the royal citadel, literally the city of the king, the heavily fortified subdivision of the city in these ancient cities. There, there are outer defenses, there are outer walls, and then what you have is a citadel on a hill, usually. That is the last place that you defend, and it's much, much harder to take. And that, at long last, has been taken. Now, in the process, he's also succeeded in capturing its water supply, literally the city of waters, they call it, a fortification guarding the city's primary water supply. Now, a a, a feat virtually guaranteeing, right, once you take away an army or a city's water, you've pretty much won. If you spoil their water or steal their water, it's pretty much over. Now, excavation of the citadel in this area, because we know where this is, we have found it, we've studied it, has revealed heavy fortifications that go back to 1750 to 1550 BC, and they are quite immense. There are stratified remains from the Iron Age city from 12 to 580 BC, which is the citadel that they're talking about. Men have walked there, men have studied it, men have measured it, and it is an exceptional feat that they took this city. Now, there are also phases that come later that even verify this story. There's an even larger wall on the outside that was built later. That was built um, probably around 580 B.C. Why? Because David took it in 980 B.C., and as it says, he put the people to work restoring it because it's a big and beautiful city that was hard to take, and once you capture something like that, you don't just give it away. You fortify it. And this is one of, the, one of the many, many, many remarkable accounts in the Bible that, that is actually verified by archaeologists separate, you know, who aren't necessarily biblical scholars. They go and they're like, oh, yeah, this place must have taken a long time and a lot of people, a lot of resources. You're like, oh, you don't say. It says right here. That's a... 
So Joab has showed a, a great deal of dogged persistence in the military undertaking. It's now finally paid off. He captured the city, and now he's asking David to take credit for the conquest. He doesn't want the credit himself. He composes, in Hebrew, a poetic announcement of his capture. He wants a song about himself, just like David had a song about him. Now, the city of water suggests an Edenic city. This is, this is always how typology works. Eden was a, a land on a, on a mountain from which four rivers flowed. Now you have a city from which a mighty river flows. They even call it the city of waters. And, and David has taken it and taken its crown. Right? And, all, and the authors of the scripture are like, get it, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Right? He's the new Adam. He's been restored. He was humbled. God has raised him up. And now what he's done is he's captured the city. He's captured Eden. He's given a new Eden and a new crown, the king of kings. He's not just the king of Israel. He's now the king of the Ammonites as well. And, and this is supposed to tell us this is where these stories go. Repentant sinners... <laughs> receive peace, not only internally in their own households, but against their enemies, and those enemies are subjugated to Christ to build his kingdom. And we, who were lost sinners in the east, return to the west and receive a new Eden. We are restored to something greater than what Adam lost. Accordingly, David mustered all the people. He, went, he goes down to the town about 40 miles from Jerusalem. They capture it. The weight of the jewel-studded crown is a talent of gold, which actually is 75 pounds. Now, can you imagine putting a... Right? I don't think he wore this around in his bathrobe on his days off. It's not that kind of crown. It's probably a crown where he sat there with a couple of people helping him prop him up so that he could hold his neck up with this 75 pounds on his head. I mean, he's a strapping fellow, but still, 75-pound crown. Now, what's interesting is in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they change it a little bit. It's not the king that was wearing the crown. It was a statue of their god, which I'm going to go with that because that's even better. Okay? Ceremonially, I think their king wore this crown from time to time. But he actually goes into the temple, takes the crown off the statue of their god, and puts it on his own head. That's what I'm talking about. Okay? This symbolism is beautiful. David defeated not only the king of the city of waters, but by Yahweh's strength, because of Yahweh's strength, he has now overcome the gods of the Ammonites themselves. He, became, he becomes now the king of kings. He takes on many crowns, the great, just like the greater descendant Jesus will do. This again reinforces the fact that when man humiliates himself before God, what will God do? When we humiliate ourselves before the Lord God, how does God respond? Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, this is what we see again and again and again. Joseph is sold into slavery. He is humbled unbelievably. He is faithful to God there. And what does he do? He rises to be the most powerful man in the most powerful country in the world. Here you see David, and he's going along, and everything's just peachy keen. And then he falls, and then he cries out to God, and he's restored. And what, what he's doing now is accumulating crowns. Because he crawled in the dirt before the face of God in his repentance, in his confession, in his self-humiliation. If you want to go up, you must first go down. If you want to be something, you first have to become nothing. 
Now, after taking control of the most important and well-defended Ammonite city, David presses the attack against all of the towns and whoops everybody. In the process, he takes many prisoners of war, consigning them to labor with saws and iron picks and axes and brick-making. These tasks are all related to the preparation of building materials and suggest that David was engaged in building or strengthening fortified structures. He's building the walls of Jerusalem. Now, what did he say at the end of Psalm 51:18? Right? He, he says, God, I'm a sinner. My sin's always before me. I've been sinning since the womb. Unless you fix my heart, there's no hope for me. And if you first fix me, then we will come into your house. We will offer sacrifices. And he ends Psalm 51, verse 18, with this. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. And you see, the story of Psalm 51 is, is still here. We didn't leave it a few chapters ago. David has, has, has laid down before the Lord, has been, God has raised him up on high, placed a crown upon his head, and now he's building up the walls of Jerusalem, literally, because he's, he's now gone and gotten this nation, brought it into Israel, and their, their job is to what? Fortify the walls of Jerusalem. Now, David has comforted his wife because he himself has been comforted. God has made peace with him. God gives David his peace and renews the covenant promises of an eternal dynasty with him. Yahweh shows forth his grace to all sinners. God can comfort you even amid terrible sins, horrible shame, heartbreaking suffering. Yahweh will exalt you as he tears down your enemies. And the path to this crown is a cross of humiliation and repentance. Yahweh gave David and Bathsheba peace. Yahweh has given peace to Israel because that is what God does. This is what the triune God desires to give us all. Peace, as it is used in the scriptures, means what? Completeness, soundness, well-being. It doesn't just mean the absence of conflict. It's a positive word. It's the presence of something. It's not just simply the absence of conflict. Peace means completeness, soundness, well-being. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Why? Because you're complete, you're whole in him. This is what he gave you. He did, <laughs> when he was leaving, he says, this is what I want to give you. I want to give you wholeness and completeness. I want to give you my peace. Peace between man and man is part of the purpose for which God died. It's the Spirit's work in us, according to Galatians 5. Man must also be active to promote peace, though, not merely as the elimination of discord, but as the harmony and true functioning of the body of Christ. What we find out is that this peace that we learn about in this story is, when you go to the Gospels and you go to the Epistles in the New Testament, is one of the major things that the church receives and is supposed to be about in the world, right? Blessed are the what? Peacemakers. It's not just something we receive, though. Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See how he puts the two things together? Strive for peace, strive for holiness. Hmm. There is a connection there. Romans 14, 19. So then let's pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Okay, so I'm not just going for peace for myself. I'm going for peace so that we have mutual upbuilding because the point is wholeness. The point is unity. The point is that we are all together on this. It's not just something that happens down in the secret parts of my heart. Biblical peace is seen in Romans. It's linked to what? Grace in Romans 1, 7. Life in Romans 8, 6. Righteousness in Romans 14, 17. Man's justification and sanctification brings him peace, and God makes him a peacemaker. 
That's what we see here. David receives peace from God. Undeserving, wretched little sinner that he is, he receives it. And what does he go into the world to do? He spreads it. Right? Because he doesn't just bring the, the conflict doesn't just end with the Ammonites. They are now brought into the kingdom of God and made workers in the kingdom of God, building the kingdom of God. With the same purpose that David has. The same mission that David has. We must be restored to the Lord God. We must receive peace from him. And that is what we receive in Christ. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this inward peace can follow, unhindered by the word strife, the world's strife, pardon me, because John 16.33 I have said these things to you, that in you, you may have it. You may have peace. I have said these things to you so that you will have peace. And if you don't have peace, you don't have these words within you. And so, oh, oh no, really? Man, that's harsh. What do, you, what do you say? Okay, let's go back to Psalm 51 and let's start at the beginning. Cry out, confess your sin, call it by its name. If you, if you don't have peace within you, it's because God is not in your heart working on it. The absence of peace is the absence of the word of God in you. And if you want the, right, if you want the peace, he is not going to just like, hey, look, I see you down there. Here is some peace. It's not separated from his word. It's not separated from going to him and dealing with the crap that you have going on. Obedience, ooh, ooh, oh no, he said that word. Obedience is how you keep this peace. Galatians 6.16, as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Oh, so if I walk in obedience, I receive this peace. Okay, it's not like the matrix where I just lay down in a bed and you stick a, I upload it in my brain. No, I have to actually walk in obedience to get this. I actually have to confess my sins. And this is what protects us, this peace. Philippians 4, 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, that word guard is actually a word you use for a military that is stationed in one location. Billeted. Right? The peace of God will literally make its home in your heart like an army, an occupying army, comes and makes, makes its presence known in the city. Why? How do they do it? Well, they build a barracks. So peace will make a barracks in your heart. Why? Because you lay down your arms and you and you right, you lay down your arms, you lay down your sins, you make peace with God. And this peace that you receive is creates a barracks in your heart of peace. And you walk around in this peace with God. And what are you able then to do? To comfort and to give peace to others. Because most of us do not understand even what the Christian religion is about. C.S. Lewis said, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. That's what most of us think it is. You know, I'm mostly okay it's just, if God just tweaked this and turned that like some origami. If he just gave a fold here or a fold there, I'd be looking pretty good. We are not imperfect creatures who need improvement. We are rebels who must lay down our arms. Now, David lays his arms down, and what does he receive? And it bothers Moses, right? David, at this point, really, he murdered a guy. He's sleeping with women who aren't his wife. He receives peace. He receives comfort. Why? Because he laid down his arms. Lay your arms down. And what you will receive from God is peace. Because what sinners, in their sin, 
whether you're, un, right, you're, you're walking in sin as an unbeliever or you're a believer who's walking in sin, either way, what you're doing is you're at peace with sin and you're at war with God. And he comes, he says, listen, I'm going through your repentance and confession to make peace with you, and now what you have to do is go to war against sin. And how do you do that? Well, you go, <laughs> you go to sinners and you comfort them and you make peace with them. And you're preaching this gospel. You're teaching this gospel. You're living this gospel. This gospel that there is hope for all of us. That all of us need to lay down our arms. That all of us need to receive this comfort and peace from heaven. And that's the only place it comes from. God wants us to put our arms down, just as David did in grief before the Lord on behalf of his son. We must lay our arms down like David did in Psalm 51. In Adam, we're at war with God and at peace with sin. And, and, and the purpose of Jesus Christ is to flip it. So what's the Great Commission? It is to be people who are comforted, people with whom God has made peace, who go into the world and comfort sinners and make peace. Do you think two unbelievers are truly ever going to have peace with one another if they don't deal with the fundamental problem? Are you ever going to have true peace with anyone if you don't deal with... Right? We, we want to make it just about comfort. We want to make it about, can't we all just get along? If we all just stopped fighting, there would be peace. But that's peace, peace where there is no peace. It's we have to lay down our arms, the arms that you've taken up against God, the arms you've taken up against your spouse, the arms you've taken up against your children, against your coworkers, against your extended family. Lay them down. Lay them down. You are a sinner. It's always before you. You've been doing it since birth. The only one that can change you is God. And the place he does it is in your heart. And from that, he brings forth comforters and he brings forth peacemakers who will go into this world and do his work. This is why he delivers us. This is why he gives us peace. This is why he comforts us. And we learn all of this from, <laughs> from two adulterers. Two adulterers who don't deserve it. A nation that doesn't deserve it. Why do they win against the Ammonites? Right? Their king isn't... Look at their king. These people deserve a victory in battle? I don't think so. And that's how we judge things. Now, our nation, how are our walls doing? <laughs> how are our hearts? How are our sacrifices? How is, how is the state of our worship? How is the world doing? Does it need comfort? Does it need peacemakers? Or is it at, right? We're, more and more and more, we look around the culture wars, the, you know, all these things going on, and we see what? Strife and warfare. And we become one-trick ponies. We, 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 we like, like the story with David and his son, look at it and be like, well, you know, Esau, he hated, so I guess that's that. We, we've forgotten how to read the story correctly. We've forgotten our place in it. We've forgotten what our purpose is. It is to call sin, sin. It is to confront people in their sins. Amen and amen and amen. Right? But it's to be comforters and peacemakers. And, and, and you may not, right? The problem is it's not going, you're not going to do it in the world until you have it in your heart, until you have it in your own home, until we have it in our own church. That's where it starts, and then it goes out from there. Now, whatever fight you're fighting against God, whatever fight you're fighting against one another, against your, inside your own homes, in the, in the, war, in, in, in the culture wars, in, in the culture around you, in the communities around you, the only way you're going to have any victory internally and externally is through what? 
confession and repentance. Right? Psalm 51, Psalm 51, Psalm 51. You want to build up the walls? You want to have a happy heart? You want to have a happy home? Psalm 51, Psalm 51, Psalm 51. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the ministry of David and his wife Bathsheba and Solomon, Lord, and Joab and the Ammonites who uh, uh, instruct us that we are in fact at war with you and what we must do is lay down our arms. We thank you for David's confession and his repentance, Lord, as a model for us. I pray that we would stop making so much of ourselves and stop building our own kingdoms, that we would stop being at war within ourselves and against one another and against you, and that we would, through Christ, lay our arms down, that we might be peacemakers and comforters and tools in his hands for the building of his kingdom. We pray these things in the name of your Son, and amen.